The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and this is the last Monday of November in 2019. Next week is the 2nd of December. It's the first week in what is generally a festive month, a month of holidays, a time of family, but it's also a sad time for many people. And with that in mind, if you need to talk, if you're stressed, emotionally overwhelmed or abused, Chai FM has a helpline. It's a toll-free number. It's 0800. It's 242436. It's caring. It's compassionate. It's confidential. That toll-free number again is 0800. 242436. It's manned 24 hours a day and it's very important should you want to talk, get something off your chest or just vent. I wasn't in last week. I was touring the country. It was International Fraud Awareness Week and South African organizations actively involved in educating the public about fraud and um, bringing forth the the um, different ways in which fraud and corruption can be fought in South Africa and bringing together the different role players, organizations such as the ACFE and the ICFP held gatherings throughout South Africa as well as um, bordering states. The ICFP, the Institute of Commercial Forensic Practitioners, held three incredible sessions. Um, two were held um, on Monday last week. One was in Johannesburg, one was in Durban, and one on Wednesday in Cape Town. The one in Johannesburg on Monday last week had none other than veteran crime fighter and South African anti-apartheid activist Willy Hoffman as the keynote speaker. In Durban that very same day, the very same time, advocate Rainer DeVorter, who is a specialist in the Public Finance Management Act and the Municipal Finance Management Act, was a, was a speaker together with myself. Um, I discussed the different legislation that can be used in the fighting of fraud and corruption in South Africa. Wednesday, the Cape Town chapter of the ICFP really went to town. They had a full array of speakers from both the public and private spe- sectors, including um, people from the Premier's office, as well as myself discussing once again legislation that can enable one to investigate financial and organized crime. But one of the best speakers of the day was by far the Brigadier from the Hawks in charge of commercial crime in the Western Cape. She discussed the importance of public-private partnerships going forward and how important it is that the private sector get involved with the um, investigation of sophisticated cyber financial organized crime, obviously with the state law enforcement agencies as the lead investigators and pursuant to respective legislation. But it was great to see that we've turned a corner where the state is now recognizing the role that the private sector can play in the investigation of such serious crimes, which have become a scourge in South Africa. Talking about Willy Hoffmeyer, who was speaking at uh, last week Monday's ICFP um, International Fraud Awareness Week event in Johannesburg, he will be our guest next week right here on Confidential Brief, live in studio. You'll be able to put your questions to him. Willie, who is an admitted attorney and apart from his LLB, also has a degree in economics and a master's degree in economic history, has been a fighter for justice for most of his life. He was a staunch anti-apartheid activist and was detained by the apartheid regime. After the first democratic elections, Willie became a member of parliament where he chaired several parliamentary committees, including being chair of the very important Constitutional Assembly Committee that drafted the chapter on the judiciary in the new constitution, and he was also the parliamentary advisor to the deputy president of the republic. 
1999, the president appointed Willie as head of the newly established Asset Forfeiture Unit, one of the most essential units in South Africa in the fight against financial, organized crime, fraud and corruption. Willie served his country with distinction, and it is indeed an honor that he'll be our guest on Confidential Brief next week. And may I just add that Willie has been one of my personal heroes for many years now, all the way back to when he was being arrested by the apartheid regime and thrown in the back of police vans, the hunger strikes, the people fighting for his release, and of course, the very good work he'd done in terms of our new democracy. If you want to find out more about Vili, you can, you can visit our page, Confidential Brief Radio Show, um, on Facebook, and we will be detailing, um, our, our show next week and our topic with Vili Hoffman. I'll be joined in the studio just now by Peter Fryer. He's from Risk Diversion. We'll be talking about his recent trip um, to Millipol in Paris and um, what is happening in terms of cyber investigations, in terms of the hardware and software used in the investigations of most crimes, including contact crimes, as well as the situation with public-private partnerships with respect to the supply of these services to the state. I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of FM, its presenters, or its management. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. People have been asking what Shamila Batoyi and Advocate Kurnia have been doing in respect of the allegations that have surfaced, um, the testimony that's been given at various commissions of inquiry, and the general public interest in major fraud and corruption cases that have made headlines in South Africa over the past couple of years. Well, we're now finally seeing movement. In the last week, we've seen the National Prosecuting Authority advise that they have reached a point within the um, investigation into the Frida Dairy debacle in the Free State, which allegedly involved the Guptas, reach a point where there has been analysis of banking records, analysis of different um, documentation that's been received, etc., and that the NPA is ready to proceed. We also saw the arrest of um, 10 people involved in the tender manipulations involving over 600 million rand in the Eastern Cape, and that involved the supply of toilets um, within that province. And we also now know that people involved with a company known as Regiments are now under investigation and that they are in the process of being arrested. One of the high-profile arrests last week was the ex-minister of intelligence. Um, this gentleman was arrested in regards to the tender fraud that we, we mentioned previously with regards to the Eastern Cape. And uh, as an ex-minister and now serving member of parliament, it shows that nobody is off limits in respect of these ongoing investigations into fraud and corruption in South Africa. The State Capture Commission has done an incredible job, and one can only remember the interview that we had earlier this year. It was an exclusive interview that we had with Angelo Igrizi, um, where he was talking about the allegations that had been leveled at him and basically admitted to a role that he played within Busasa and the allegations of state capture. And who can forget the remarks that he made during that interview? At one stage, I asked him, how do you sleep at night? And he answered me, very well, thank you. That to me was a complete and utter shock to the system because when one speaks about the amounts of money involved um, in that alleged state capture, we're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions of rands. Um, I then asked him if he would ever consider paying back the money because he's basically admitted to have been part of a corrupt enterprise. And he said to me during that, in- that interview that he'd pay back money should he be asked. 
And that to me was, was once again an exceptionally bizarre statement. Subsequent to that, Agrizi was arrested. He has been formally um, charged and released on bail. And the incredible thing is he was released on bail of 20,000 rand. Now, I have a similar case involving um, fraud and corruption, except it's in the private sector. So it's not taxpayers' money that's been stolen. It doesn't run into the billions of rands, but it runs to around the 300 million rand market. It involves um, a father and son known as the Smiths. They left South Africa, went to Dubai, and recently returned to South Africa where they were arrested at ORT. They were initially Brought before the magistrate in the Kempton Park Magistrate's Court, where they were held for seven days further investigation. The following week, they appeared in the Palm Ridge Magistrate's Court. Now, just to put this into perspective, they've been charged in a Ponzi scheme where it is alleged that they've stolen in excess of 300 million rand. Um, further to that, certain accounts have been seized, certain money um, has been placed under preservation by the asset forfeiture unit. But all in all, this Ponzi scheme was quite an advanced Ponzi scheme. It was featured on carte blanche. It was featured in the Saturday Star. And there were even extensions to this Ponzi scheme. Why am I bringing this up in relation to Angelo Agresi and Bosasa? Well, I mentioned to you that Angelo Agresi got... 20,000 rand bail for basically admitting to being involved in a criminal enterprise that plundered our country's um, treasury, plundered SARS, plundered other organizations that were um, responsible for bringing in taxpayers' money, paying it out to departments which would then utilize those funds such as Department of Corrections. And here we're talking hundreds of millions, if not billions of rand. Um, with that in mind, one would have expected a severe bail, but these chaps that I'm talking about, they've got a bail of an amount of 250,000 rand each. So the father got 250,000 rand, the son got 250,000 rand. There's a total of 500,000 rand that they had to come up with as bail money um, regarding a 300 million rand Ponzi scheme that involved the private sector. You then have a greasy who is charged with hundreds of millions of rands, if not billions of rands in terms of state capture, and he gets bail of 20,000 rand. And then one has to question whether or not it's now become beneficial for these people to actually commit fraud and corruption on such a large scale because it would seem that the consequences um, are, are such that there are no consequences. If there are consequences such as court battles, etc., they have the money to enable them to fight these battles. You'll only find poor people in prison. And that's why the asset forfeiture unit is so critical, because they can cut the legs off at the knees of fraudsters and corrupt people. Because if they get involved in time and the preservation order is issued, although the accused uh, will, through his attorneys, be able to make petition to the relative curator bonus that's been appointed to allow for funds to be made available for attorneys, etc., they won't be able to spend the huge amounts that we've seen getting spent on top advocates in this country, on silks, and nor will they have access to funds to try corrupt the process. So it's vitally important that the asset forfeiture get involved from the outset. And like I mentioned earlier in the show, next week, 2nd of December, we have in studio Willy Hoffmeyer, the head of the asset forfeiture unit, soon to be retired, discussing his career in, in fighting crime in South Africa, his career as a member of parliament, as head of the um, parliamentary committee on justice, um, his role in writing that particular chapter on the role of the judiciary in the constitution and of course his time as a staunch anti-apartheid activist we're going to take a break when we come back we're chatting to peter fryer from risk diversions
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm joined in studio today by Peter Fryer. He is a specialist um, in terms of finding tools that assist in the fighting of crime and the investigation of serious crimes, whether it's software, whether it's hardware. This is the man that the state has gone to in the past and the man that has been able to find the correct tool for the correct investigation. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Chad. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. Peter, you just got off a plane. I believe you were attending um, Millipol um, Paris 2019. You got back this weekend. The minister was there. Tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, Millipol traditionally has been a, a go-to for me over the last couple of years. I think this uh, this year saw my fifth visit. Uh, Millipol is hosted uh, every two years in Paris. And uh, it's, in my opinion, probably the single largest exposition of military law enforcement and, in, and intelligence uh, producers, vendors, manufacturers, all found in one location. Uh, to put it in context, you know, my trusty step counter tells me that uh, on one day I walked just over 14 kilometers um, inside of the exhibition halls. And, uh, you know, to put it in scale, that's huge. Um, you know, I spent uh, four days visiting our trusted partners there and also looking for new technology to bring back to South Africa. I mean, South Africa is not unique in the problems that we face, and uh, the world's leaders were on that stage, so to speak. must have been comforting for you to see our erstwhile Minister of Police, General Becky Taylor, um, also present at this event, also looking at the type of technology used in fighting crime. It, it was encouraging to see uh, several South Africans from uh, from the delegation. Um, I saw the minister. I uh, ambushed him uh, at one of the exhibition stands. He was on his way to, to one of the discussion pieces. And uh, I saw a lot of representatives from the South African police as well as from the state security agency. And it is encouraging. You know, it's the single stage in the world where law enforcement can comfortably move around and have a look at what's absolutely cutting edge. And I think, you know, if we just consider what the crime rate is in South Africa, it's needed. This exhibition bigger than those in, in Shanghai and Vegas? It, it could be comparable. Um, you know, Vegas has a, a very definite uh, show type. So, you know, typically, if you're looking for weapons and armaments, um, you would go to the the shot show. Um, but Millipol, it's a mixed bag. So you'd find things from uh, officer safety technologies, body armor, uh, fly, fire retardant uh, clothing, um, high vis markings, warning lights, um, door breaching, house penetration tools, the big weapons manufacturer are there as well and then there's a big contingent of intelligence components you know technologies that are used to to aid law enforcement and intelligence agencies to track mobile devices to extract information from cell phones um, to enhance cctv footage so it, it's a true mixed bag of you know, a cornucopia if you will of technologies used by law enforcement agencies around the world what was Peter Fryer looking for? So Peter Fryer traditionally goes to Millipol to you know, A, meet our existing partners. So we represent uh, technologies from around the globe, which we've traditionally sold to, to the South African police and other law enforcement agencies around the sub-Saharan uh, region for, I would say, the last decade and a half, and also looking for new technologies. And there's a definite trend that's emerging. And you know, if, if I can, the one trend that I saw, it goes very much around officer safety. It's about tracking the location of officers on duty. It's about monitoring certain and biorhythms um, of the officer whilst he's on patrol. So an example of that uh, would be a vest that, that a, a security officer or a police officer can wear underneath their body armor. It would track things like their heart rate. Uh, it has an accelerometer, so if the officer all of a sudden falls over, doesn't get back up um, you know, from falling over within a period of time, it can trigger an emergency signal. And it's all about monitoring the, the safety of the officer whilst on patrol and out in the wild. Several law enforcement agencies have opted to introduce this um, because uh, through 
some of the new innovation, it now has the ability to remotely indicate where an officer has been shot and where on the body that officer has been shot. That then helps emergency services coordinate. You know, is the shot potentially life-threatening? I think any gun shop you know, is potentially life-threatening. But you know, the officer has the ability to then either get up or stay and wait for, for emergency response. Incredible. Sadly, in the early hours of yesterday morning, two police officers lost their lives in Boysons. So it's a major issue in South Africa. It would be nice to have such a monitoring system. Would our police not think of it more as a babysitting type device? Would they not think of it more as something that's monitoring them from a disciplinary perspective rather as something that's there to aid them? I think it is a, 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 a double-edged sword, if if you will. And uh, in in discussions that I've had uh, several years ago with some of the policing unions, and this went specifically around the use of body-worn cameras, um, it has the ability to act as the independent eyewitness. With something like biorhythm monitoring, you know, sure it can help you identify the location of an officer, but that information itself can also be used where a dispute arises, whether the police uh, responded to a call uh, for help or not, and also. After the fact, it can be used to relay uh, for training, weapons and tactics. So I, I think it has more benefits rather than you know people looking at it as Big Brother watching you. The information can be anonymously collected, so you don't always have to associate a, a force number or a personal number with the sensor. But it can help you remotely coordinate specific act, uh, actions in the field um, without having to be present on the scene. If we were to take a simple example, something like Marikana, um, which now, you know, several years after the fact, the true picture still hasn't yet emerged. If you had the ability to track biorhythm as well as location during the Marikana event, you could quite easily put people in positions and understand, you know, were they being flanked, where were people when shots were fired? Because the sensor that I'm speaking about specifically has the ability to integrate other sensors as well. So it's not just biorhythms. You can pair it with other sensors as well. So gunshot detection, uh, weapons tracking, an example of something like that be uh, an asset tag that you could mount onto your weapon. And should the weapon be removed from the officer for a certain amount of time, that sensor that could in fact trigger a panic to say that the officer may be down and his weapon is now no longer in his control. I understand all of this and I appreciate the fact that even with the the weapon tracking, there's been a open-ended tender process for many years now. I know that Lyndon T was involved at one stage. We all know that he had links supposedly to Basasa at the time. But people have been talking about aggressively being able to track weapons because we find that many weapons that are in use by either the police or the military have been used in the commitment of serious crimes. But when it comes to the camera side of things, I think there would be a lot of um, fight back, especially by Popka and Sapu, because they, they, they see it as a device that can be used as a means to discipline a member or to be used in a process against a member rather than to protect the member. How do we get over this mindset? Well, I, I think it is just that, a mindset. You know, law enforcement agencies around the world have adopted and are adopting body-worn cameras. You know, all the major forces, the London Metropolitan, New York Police, you know, you could travel anywhere in the world today and you'd find body-worn cameras in place. And, you know, the argument often is that when the police do arrive in court and they have to describe an altercation, you know, perhaps somebody's intoxicated, a barroom brawl, if you will, you know, it's usually the officer's word against a well-paid attorney. I mean, you know, your, your segment just before I arrived went around that. That only poor people end up in prison. And, you know, the emotional scenario is usually, if you picture it, a sporting event, um, there's some alter- altercation, the police arrive, they're outmatched in terms of size, fitness, 
um, and they end up in a fight for their life. They end up hurting um, the potential uh, suspect in this case. Monday morning, they arrive in court to defend their actions, and um, you know the the uh, the accused in this case is well dressed. He's got one of the high paid attorneys um, representing him, and then the the police force have to then explain how they arrested, how they detained this individual, whereas with, with body-worn footage, um, it can't be tampered with, it can't be deleted, it provides you with a true objective um, third, third eye, the, the eyewitness account of what happened. Unfortunately, with the prevalence of social media, what normally happens is you're only seeing the last 25 seconds of the altercation. You're not seeing the lead-up or the build-up where the officer arrives, uses verbal judo, you know, verbal commands, then moves into a position to try and restrain um, the, the assailant or the, the, uh, the accused in the case. Um, what often happens is they then get to a fight for their life and then they end up injuring somebody and you know, officers themselves get injured. With a body-worn camera, it can provide you with a full objective eyewitness view of what was said and what was done. Body-worn footage can also assist in other crime types. So if you take domestic violence, for example, where the police arrive on the scene, it's a high-stress environment, and uh, let's say the victim of that domestic violence doesn't want to open a case. The body-worn footage can also be used to depict what the condition of the victim in this case was, whether it be a husband or a wife or a child, and that then can also be introduced as evidence to explain why the case was opened and why police are now following through with this uh, domestic violence case, for example. So I think it's a mind shift that needs to be moved and South Africa is not an island you know we do experience the same problems it's the scale of our problem that, that is, is often different to, to other countries in the world but major forces around the world are adopting body worn cameras as a standard um, as policing equipment we're talking about technology and the fight against crime with Peter Fryer. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what tools are actually available right now and what tools will be made available come the near future you're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. We're very lucky to be joined in the studio today by Peter Fryer, who is a specialist, if not one of the foremost experts in South Africa, on technology which is used in the fight against crime. Um, if you found today's show interesting, the podcast will be uploaded tomorrow and there will be repeats later in the week. Peter, while we were taking the break, you and I were chatting um, about products that have been in use in South Africa but may have reached the expiry date. We spoke about the Morpho Touch. We know that the city of Cape Town has used technology to try to trace the source of um, gunfire, etc. What is currently being used in South Africa and what do we need to get in order to be, to be able to fight crime? Effectively, so I, I think you know, if if we go back to the currently the, the currently used technology in terms of you know, detecting the presence of gunfire, it's a uh, it's a very novel solution. Um, the product is uh, called Shot Spotter. It's used by agencies around the world, and um, you know I think it is a game changer because it allows emergency services to respond timelessly to you know gunshots. So South Africa being you know, the violent society that it is. Gunshots are still, you know, one of the methods, or guns are still one of the methods used in, in committing the crime. And then, you know, when we when we roll down to things like fingerprinting technology, South Africa's been a big user of AFIS, the um, you know, Automated Fingerprint Identification System, and the system has been in use, and you know, if uh, I stand to be corrected, for a decade plus. Um, and you know, whilst the technology is fully matured, um, there are other technologies out there. There are development houses around the world that have found ways to optimize the searching of fingerprints in a very structured way. Um, one of the examples of this, uh, you know, an exhibit 
center that I that I visited with and had a chat with uh, at Millipol, um, they found a way where their database currently has over a billion fingerprints. So you know, to put that in in context, it's it's huge. You know, it's it's a hundred times the population of South Africa, um, or ten times, twenty times the population of South Africa. But you know, they have a way to to capture the fingerprints on the scene using a smartphone, um, upload it into their database, and return results from within that that billion set of fingerprints within 12 seconds. You know, that in my mind is a game changer where traditional methods used in South Africa still means possibly reducing fingerprints, you know, onto paper using ink rollers. You know, I can speak from experience, you know, recently having to go to a police station to capture my fingerprints for my firearm application. You know, they're still using an ink pad and a roller um, and you're rolling your fingerprints onto a piece of paper. It, it is a, an art because, you know, ink moves, you get smudged prints and you know, for the purpose that that, that that was designed for was purely just to store the fingerprint. You know, that print then goes to a, a, C, a you know, CRC to get scanned in and then get uploaded into the APHIS database, where once the print is in the in the database, you know, how do you search for that? With this with this novel technology, um, you would have the ability to, if there's an accident scene, if there's a murder scene, you know, the, the LCRC on the scene could actually use a custom smartphone app, take a finger, uh, a photo of a finger, not not even a fingerprint, take a photo of the finger and search a national database and return immediately, you know, the potential identity of that individual or, you know, whether that individual has a criminal record. Think of arrests, think of roadblocks, you know, think of where these, these crime sweeps are done. So before they're even put into the back of a, a police vehicle, you already have an indication, is this person wanted? Is it a fugitive that has just been apprehended as a result of, you know, an anti-crime campaign um, that's been committed in the or been uh, undertaken in the city centre. So, you know, in terms of what we need, I think it's just about the numbers. And you know, I often quote these statistics, and you know, they won't be accurate to the thousand, but they'll be ac- accurate you know, to within the, the the thousand range. But the South African police currently have in the region of about one hundred ninety thousand police officers. In and amongst that mix, you have about twenty five thousand detectives. Um, you have about 3,800 forensic field workers, and these are your, your crime scene management, the, the crime scene technicians, people that you are trained, not necessarily that have all the equipment that will come onto the scene and take fingerprints or collect evidence, touch and trace, ballistics, DNA, etc. And then you're in and amongst those 190,000 police officers, we currently have less, and I'm going to be very, very optimistic here and um, say that we currently have less than 100 people trained in the South African police to be able to analyze and extract digital evidence. And when I say digital evidence, I'm not talking about your cyber malware hacker type evidence. I'm talking about individuals that are trained that have the ability to extract information from mobile devices, that have the ability to extract information from computers or extract and, and recover CCTV evidence. And you know, that, in my mind, is a number that needs to be corrected quite drastically because every single crime you know, there's typically committed one person against another, and there's always a cell phone. I, in fact, don't know anybody that doesn't have a cell phone. And if we just touch on cell phones, for example, um, you know, for a few minutes, is that cell phones is the one piece of forensic evidence that will allow you to prove intent. Because the content of the message that exists on that mobile device could provide you with that evidence to say, I'm going to come and kill you, for example. And that's the content of the message that the service providers typically don't have. You know, service providers don't have the content of a WhatsApp, whereas the WhatsApp content is on the mobile device. And using the tools and techniques currently available, you have the ability to extract that evidence, including deleted information from the mobile device. 
It's time to pay the bills and uh, to take an ad break. When we come back, we're going to talk about when does does technology become too much? When does it become big brother? And then most importantly, we're going to discuss the value of public-private partnerships. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're having an extremely important conversation today regarding the use of technology in the fight against crime. And I honestly believe that South Africa is not effectively utilizing technology and that we're playing catch-up. But I'm not the expert in this. Peter Fryer is. Peter, is there any truth to the statements I just made? Well, you know, I think in terms of putting me in the expert category, I've spent you know, my whole adult life working within technology, working within the law enforcement space. And, you know, technology does play an extremely important role in policing. And the South African police is following a model that's been adopted by other law enforcement agencies, and it's towards what, what they're referring to internally as an e-policing framework. Um, that will see the frontline officer, you know, the uniformed visible policing officer, with access to some technology to make capturing of information on the crime scene easier, because currently it's done in pocketbooks and there's a lot of verbal information that gets carried over. So I think there is a drive to professionalize and digitize the South African police of today. You know, South Africa is also uh, uniquely positioned in terms of its size of the of the police service. You know, we're one of the largest national police services in the world. You know, other agencies around the world, if you take uh, the U.S. for example, um, you know, they have 18,000 policing agencies. You know, from their local, state and federal, you know, they have 18,000 police forces, some of them doing their own thing, some of them towing the proverbial party line as it relates to, you know, what the state agencies are doing. So South Africa, you know, often finds itself in, in the middle of two camps. We're not small enough to be able to do whatever it is we want, but we're too big sometimes to be able to effectively and in a timeless manner implement technology. And, you know, it, it's often the challenge that, you know, by the time uh, demonstrations, presentations, pilot projects have been run and Let's say, for example, the tender process and the procurement process has, has been launched. By the time that tender is awarded, the technology that you finally pulled the trigger on or made the choice on could be three or four years old. Do you think we're going to see a change in attitude, especially with regard to this protracted tender process? One looks at what's happened with the NPA. Um, Shamila Batoy actually mentioned at this stage that she would even welcome money from the private sector to try accommodate the need to full post, etc., which I think was a foolhardy statement to make. But the Treasury came to her rescue very fast and has allocated a billion rand so that she can fill the vacant prosecutorial posts as well as establish her investigative unit, which is going to specialize in the state capture um, environment, which will also recover money in terms of restorative justice and restitution, etc. Do you think that we will we will see an emergence of tenders that are regarded as as not just urgent but as critical, and that this entire protracted process can now be fast tracked? I certainly hope so. So, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, having having served SAPs for the last decade and a half as a service provider, I, I can tell you that, you know, SAPs haven't renewed some of their specialist licenses for almost two years now. Um, but also, it, it's it's my experience that, you know, some of the procurement that takes place is very specialist. And SAPs haven't geared themselves for setting up specialist procurement environments. So technology, you know, which typically is within the domain of what is referred to as the technology management services, you know, they buy laptops and printers and, you know, 
technology at large, IT at large, where you know some of the forensic stuff is very specialist. It's not just simply a laptop with more RAM. It is a specialist computer you know, designed to do certain things. But you know, in in terms of can we see some rapid procurement? I think so, yes. But also South Africa has a very mature private market um, for forensics. And it, it wouldn't be new or novel or unique uh, in the terms of outsourcing forensics to privately run labs or privately run firms. And a lot of a lot of countries have private labs that are run and maintained as businesses, but they're funded directly from the state. An example of that would be the Netherlands, um, Sweden, for example. So they have privately run ra- labs that, that undertake policing work, and they testify as independent experts on behalf of the state. So let's talk about that more. South Africa right now has more practitioners in private security than the police, the army, and correctional services combined. You've got 550,000 active security officers in South Africa, and you've got around about the 10,000, 11,000 mark of active security companies. Now, these companies also incorporate investigation firms. And a private investigator is defined in the act as somebody who investigates a third party on behalf of another party without that third party's consent. So there's already legislation in place for investigations to take place. And there's also case law. If one looks at um, State v. Boerter 1995 or State v. Dube 2000, there's, there's current case law that allows for the, the independent investigation of crimes to take place other than that of the state law enforcement agencies. What would be needed for these labs to be established within the current legal framework for their evidence to be admitted without us falling foul of the fruit of the poison tree doctrine? I think it would, it would go around certification, qualifications, and proficiency testing. You know, a lot of the experts that, that currently serve in the private sector um, have retired from within the law enforcement space. Um, and within the private sector, the funding is, is easy, easier to access um, in order to attend international conferences, to receive further training, to acquire new technologies. So the private sector has and maintains better technology than law enforcement currently have because it is a business after all. So I don't think there would be much that would need it to be changed. It, it would be a bit of a paradigm shift from law enforcement to allow the third party, the, the non-law enforcement agent or the non-law enforcement forensic expert to supply them with the evidence. And, I mean, if we use fingerprints, for example, we, we often see that there's, a, there's sometimes a disparity about the quality of the prints that our, our experts collect and submit in terms of investigation to what are currently being submitted by the LCRC. And, you know, the LCRC rule of thumb is usually that they don't accept prints collected by non-SAPS officials. So it could just be a policy amendment. I don't think a legal framework would need to be put in place other than ensuring that any experts that uh, are practicing in the private sector need to be affiliated with professional bodies, need to maintain their professional certifications and undergo regular proficiency testing. I've been fortunate enough to, to visit your labs in Pretoria and I see that the labs have the full protocols in place, etc. But you, the exception to the rule, if it's privatized in a perfect world, would we need new legislation? Or would there be an amendment to some or other act to allow for this to happen? And how long would it take for us to reach that point? 
I think the, the current professional bodies out there would be sufficient to manage the, the, the regulation of the forensics industry. I mean, we have the Associate of Certified Fraud Examiners, we have the Institute, Institute for Commercial Forensic Practitioners, and we have CIRA as well themselves as you know, the, the state-sanctioned um, regulator. I think there could be some minor policy tweaks between those three regulators that could see uh, proficiency testing and accreditation coming from them. Obviously, that has to be acceptable to, to government. And the time frame, I think it could be rapidly upscaled. If we consider what backlogs currently are, I mean, you're confidentially shared with me, uh, you know, from some of these environments with, within the SAPS space, some of the backlogs are purported to be in excess of four years. You know, evidence lying on a shelf that hasn't been touched by virtue of the fact that there aren't resources, um, both human resources as well as software, to be able to investigate these backlogs. The sad thing is when one looks at contact crimes, especially crimes against children that are of sexual nature or crimes against women that, that include rape, etc., there's a massive backlog in the DNA testing, etc., um, coming from the private sector, knowing the challenges faced by the public sector, in a perfect world, what needs to be done within the next two years to enable our law enforcement to stop playing catch-up and reach a point where they can be reactive virtually immediately? I think it, it has to stop. Uh, it has to start at uh, at senior management level. You know, it's been my experience that you know senior management either don't know or they don't care. There's this level of apathy as it comes to you know implementing drastic measures. And you know, we've seen emergency procurement take place. But if you're talking about things like you know DNA, there are established DNA environments in South Africa, and to my knowledge, there are only three labs in South Africa currently handling DNA. And you know, many years ago, a huge investment was made to bring them in line with international standards. But the technology currently available, and you know, I can give you a simple example of that, is that the French police have rolled out virtually to every one of their labs a mobile DNA lab. That means that once this lab touches down, and it could be uh, a, a serial killer, it could be a mass grave, it could be a high-priority crime scene, they can, from when that vehicle stops on scene and they've started processing their first sample, the first sample takes two hours to develop and basically calibrate the equipment, but they then have the ability to process about 20 DNA samples, 20 DNA profiles every 40 minutes. Sure. So it can, in fact, be done. And we're not talking about a huge installation. You know, the, the vehicle that I actually saw and I spent uh, some time with, with the manufacturer of it, um, you know, it's something that fits onto the back of a five-ton truck. So it is mobile. It can be taken closer to the crime scene. And, and that leads me to, to the next concept of forensics. And there, there's a whole framework emerging referred to as area forensics where the traditional methodology sees you collecting evidence on the crime scene, bringing it back to a lab. And, you know, in the South African context, that could be several hundred kilometers away, um, where if you push technology to the bounds, push technology to the front line, a lot of the hardware and software manufacturers that we're working with now are developing their tools for non-technical users, for the detective, for example. So if you push the technology to the bounds, to the absolute front line of where the crime is being committed, that f turnaround time could in fact be less than an hour. And that there increases the public's confidence in the, South, in the South African police in this instance, but it could also mean that you could address the backlogs, you could address KPIs that currently aren't being met within these, within these agencies. Sounds like a virtual um, triage area for crime scene management being created at the scene of the crime. One final question for you. With your dealings with government, the public sector, and the end user of late, are you optimistic or pessimistic that there's a change in the attitude towards technology and are we going to see more technology rolled out in the coming months or years? 
having spent the last decade and a half working within this sort of public-private partnership, I've seen technology being adopted at a higher level. Um, not at the at the scale that it should be implemented at, but the move to technology is definitely there. You know, technology provides whether it be the law enforcement agency or the member of the public the the ability to measure certain things. And you know, if if we talk in context with crimes being committed, there's a it's it's commonly referred to as the golden hour, where you know the officer on the scene has an hour to extract the cooperation from the witness, you know, to extract the cooperation from you know the owner of the store where the CCTV footage exists. So Yes, I don't think much is needed other than a mind shift change and the money that they already have to be spent in the right place. Peter Fryer from Risk Diversions, your particulars are going to be uploaded to our Facebook groups as well as other social media and our website. I thank you for your, your expert uh, um, opinion today, and I'd like to get you back in studio next year so we can chat about the technological changes that have been experienced and what has been put in place. Um, as you're well aware, I'm the eternal optimist when it comes to the changes that we need, and it seems that you're very like-minded in that regard. Chair, thank you very much for the opportunity and welcome the chance to come back. We've been chatting to Peter Fryer from Risk Diversions about the technological challenges facing law enforcement and those technological advances that have been made and should be utilized. Next week, I'll be chatting to Willy Hoffmeyer. He's currently the head of the Asset Forfeiture Unit. He's working out his last week, which is a sad loss. He's reached the age of 65. We hope he'll be used effectively within the um, state sector on contract. If not, I'm sure somebody in the private sector is waiting in eager anticipation to make him an offer. So we'll be back next week same time same place with Willie Hoffmeyer from the National Prosecuting Authority's Asset Forfeiture Unit